Amen. Amen. Okay, we're going to let the uh, children be dismissed <clears throat> for junior church. And as they go, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of uh, Matthew, in chapter 16. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. The title of our discussion this morning is Building God's Church. Building God's Church. Let's look together at Matthew chapter 16 and verse 1. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. If you follow through this uh, chapter in the Gospel of Matthew, you realize that you were getting into a time period in the life of Christ when the opposition that was coming against him is intensifying. As you read through the Gospels, you will gain a sense that there is a growing opposition to the message and truth that Jesus Christ not only speaks, but that he himself embodies. When you get to verse 13 of chapter 16, you find a transition. Uh, They come to a a region called Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus brings his disciples into a discussion about his identity, because his identity is in fact what was controversial and the cause of trouble for Christ. And so he says to his disciples, <clears throat> when he came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, verse 13, he asked his disciples, <clears throat> who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. It's fascinating as you read that reply to the question of Christ that you realize that the perceptions of Jesus have not changed an awful lot, have they? Many people in our world accept that Jesus was a good teacher. He was a fascinating person. He certainly may have been a prophet, but there is a lot of debate over whether or not he was who he claimed to be. So Jesus is interrogating his disciples to see that they have a clear understanding of who he is. Verse 15. Jesus says, but what about you? Okay, and I think this is the watershed question of life. Who do people say that Jesus is? People have all kinds of opinions about who Jesus is. The question that all of us need to face this morning is this. Who do you say that Jesus is? What is your personal response to, your personal perception of the individual that is the centerpiece of the New Testament and I believe also of the Old Testament Scriptures. So Jesus presses His inner circle. Who do you say that I am? And it's fascinating in verse 16, Simon Peter, I think answering as a representative of the group of disciples, gives this answer. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay, you are the Christ. Christ meaning the anointed one, the promised one, the Messiah that the Old Testament believers spoke about. The hope of the people of God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, some translations say by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, 
I will build my church and the gates of Hades or hell, the place of dead, will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will, will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Because the term Christ would have been a controversial term in that day. The one who was the Christ would be the one who would overthrow human government and establish a kingdom that would last forever. And so in his wisdom, Jesus tells the disciples, keep this message close until after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the beginning of the church, the body of Christ. I want you to think with me real quickly about the names of a few companies from time past in America. Okay, I'm going to, for, for those of you that are younger, these names will mean nothing to you. Okay? But <clears throat> I want to illustrate for you how changeable our world is. How enormous things come and go. Powers move and disappear. A company like Pan Am. Okay, all the other people, no, okay, Pan Am's was an international airline, really kind of the, if you will, the, just the marquee name amongst airlines. I thought of another one, Eastern Airlines, okay? Everybody that knows about Eastern Airlines will think that's the airline that will never go away, but it's gone. It's gone. Fast food companies, how many of you remember Geno's, right? Some of you younger people, if you're like 40 and under, you're going to say like, what, Gino, who, what? Okay. Remember the slogan, Geno's is the place to go. Well, guess what? Geno's is, it's gone. It's gone. How about Grant Department Stores? How many of you remember Grant Department Stores? Okay. It's like, they were like the Walmart of my day when I was a kid. Gone. Okay. I grew up in a town called Harleysville. Okay. It was the headquarters for Harleysville National Bank. I, that bank was beside my dad's business from the time that I was a kid. I could never imagine a world without Harleysville National Bank. Guess what happened about 12 months ago? Harleysville National Bank disappeared. Virtually went bankrupt and had to be taken over by another bank. Look, I said, Pastor Tim, why say those things? Because here's the truth. You will watch, as you live in this fallen world, a process of instability, instability and destructibility. And you will long for things that last. We live in a world where corporations break apart, where marriages break apart, where churches break apart, where all kinds of things break apart. And there is for us in our culture often a sense of a pervasive instability. Our world is very temporary and in many ways very insecure. Things last a short while and become obsolete. Change becomes normative. Right now, in the world that we live in, there is an era of time. I don't mean just our country. I mean in the world at large. There is an uncertainty. There are social and global concerns. There are economic concerns. They are not new. If you study history, you will find out that that is just the way things are on planet Earth. And what we long for as we watch that and observe that, and in many ways experience it, we long for something that's going to last something that we can ground our lives in, something that we can count on and depend upon. And that is so difficult to find in the world that we live in. We want something we can safely invest in. We want someone that we can truly trust and count on. 
The honest truth is that many of us tend to anticipate and prepare and expect disappointment to come. It is somewhat normative. In this text, however, Jesus talks about something that is permanent. Something that will last forever and that will never go out of style. Something that is remarkably permanent that will never pass away. It is an institution that he talks about here that has endurance through all circumstances, even though it is made up of humanity. Because it is not begun by man and it is not primarily maintained by men, even though we often think that it is. The institution that Jesus identifies in verse 18 is called the church. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, and we'll come back to it in a moment, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. It's a fascinating word that he uses to describe that which has permanence. Because the word church literally means a group of people that are called out, that are assembled together. And I don't know if you're like me, but every time I see a group of people gathered in a place, there's a natural question that comes to my mind. When I'm in New York City walking around and I see a crowd of people gathered in a specific location, I always want to know, why are they gathered there? What is their purpose in coming out from the rest of everybody and being together as a group? The church is the people of God. It is the family of God. It is the household of God called out from the world around us to be together. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9 puts it in this way. It says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who belong to God. That is a beautiful identity that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. The church is the people of God called out of the general population of the world to become part of an institution, part of an organism. The focus of the word for church here is not primarily on the idea of an organization. It's not primarily on a building. It's not on a structure. The emphasis is not on denominations. The en emphasis is on an organism, a living group of people that Jesus Christ has personally devoted himself to forever. And here's the thing I want to emphasize this morning. Whatever promises this passage makes to the church as an entity, that is the church corporately or as a body, whatever promises this text makes to the church, it also makes to every believer. Okay, why? Because the church is made up of individuals drawn together corporately as an assembly for God-given purposes. So whatever God says to the church in this text, He is also saying to everyone who has placed saving faith in Jesus Christ. The church, therefore, is made up of, according to this text, of all those who confess their sin, believe in the name of Jesus, and have been redeemed by His blood. They have this common confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he is the one promised in the Old Testament who went to the cross to pay the price for our sins. Now, this text, I think, has as its primary purpose to affirm the support of Jesus for his church. Therefore, he affirms his support in this text for every Christian. Okay, and here's the question I have for you. 
Do you, do you recognize that you are so dearly and deeply loved by Christ? That he has pledged himself to your success individually and together as the body of Christ. Well, see, that's the promise that this text asserts. And what I want us to kind of focus our attention on is this unconditional commitment of Jesus to the survival and success of the church. Therefore, to the survival and success of every Christian sitting in this room this morning. Every person who has placed saving faith and trust in Christ should be living with a large degree of confidence in the Savior who not only has purchased them, but also wants to use their life for His glory. So I want to list four basic observations. The first one is this. It's a look at Peter. Okay, because Peter plays centrally in this passage of Scripture. Peter's response to Jesus when he says, Who do you say that I am? He says this. He says, You are the Christ the son of the living God. That is, this is Peter's confession, or if you will, his admission about the identity of Jesus. You are the unique, promised son of God. What is true about everyone in the church? Okay, my first thought is this. Peter is the model member of the church. Okay, he is the, the model, the prototypical believer. Okay, what is true about Everyone in the church, and I think it is very simply this, they are people who believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They are people who have confessed that they are sinners in need of a Savior, and they are trusting in the Son of God alone, the one who fulfills all the expectations and promises from the Old Testament. That is the one that they trust in for forgiveness and for the hope of salvation through His shed blood. Now I want you to notice the response of Jesus to the confession of, of Peter. Verse 17. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you but by man, but by my Father who is in heaven. Here Jesus recognizes that Jesus is a, re a, a representative testifier or confessor. He is a model disciple or believer. He is doing what everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ should do throughout the remainder of their life and on into eternity. Confessing that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the ground and assurance of our hope. The result for every believer is this. Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter. And the idea here of blessed, you go back to Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes. It is this. It is the happy, God-given joy of people who have placed their confidence in God. Jesus looks at Peter, anticipating all the struggles that he's going to face in the future. And he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, you are in a blessed place because you understand the purpose for which I have come. Now, when he calls him Peter, okay, and notice how this happens. It says, Jesus replied, you are... Simon, the son of Jonah. You are the rock, verse 18, upon which I will build my church. I tell you, you are Peter. Let me just see if I can add some clarification to this statement. You are Peter. John chapter 1 and verse 42. Simon comes to Jesus, right? 
And after Jesus interacts with Simon, he says to him in John chapter 1, verse 42, he says, you shall be called Peter. The word here is Petros or rock. Okay? When you get to Matthew 16, when Peter, now later in the public ministry of Jesus, later in his encounter with Jesus, Peter now says to him, you not will be called Peter, you now are Peter. Okay? Early on, you will be called the rock. In the middle of his public ministry, Jesus looks at him after this confession. You are the Christ. He says, you are Peter. Okay, now, think about this with me, if you will. Peter, you're the rock. And yet, I'm going to look in five or six verses and find Peter sticking his foot in his mouth. I'm going to look a few chapters down the road and I'm going to see Peter as the denier of Christ. Okay, and you, you have to say, okay, there's a bit of a paradox here. If Peter is the model, the symbolic testifier, confessor of Jesus, Jesus says to him, you are the rock, but he is a man who struggles with inadequacies. And yet Jesus looks at him and calls him something that he isn't personally, that he isn't internally or essentially. He looks at him in terms of what he will be as a result of God's work in him. Why is this encouraging? That Peter is called the rock. I think it's encouraging because Peter, as a model believer, was a fallible and sinful man who didn't always get things right. There is nothing about Peter that we would say is extraordinary. In fact, if you look at all the men that Jesus chose to be the foundation of the early church, one thing you will be struck by is the remarkable ordinariness of the early church. And that for every one of us should be an encouragement. Here's the simple truth. You, as a brother or sister in Christ, as a child of God, you are who God says you are. Everyone who trusts in Christ is who God says they are. They're God's children, given His protection and His working in their life. And I think we could also say this. No one in this room can know their true potential apart from the grace of God. But once you give yourself to Christ, once you yield to the call and wooing of the Spirit of God in your life, you will become something that you never could have become on your own through your works. You become a child of God's. You become someone who is incorporated into this new entity that has promised the protection and security of God. You become part of the church. How does that happen? By simply confessing that Jesus is the Christ. So the question that emerges out of this first thought as we look at Peter as a model confessor or testifier to Christ is this. Who do you say that Jesus is? Do you believe this morning, personally, from your heart, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God? And are you trusting in him to bring you to your full potential that will be not for your own glory, but that will be for the glory and praise of the one who has so powerfully and gloriously redeemed you from your sin. Now here's the bottom line. In a world that says there are many ways to heaven, this text says there is one way to heaven. And to know God personally, you must come through his son, Jesus Christ. And when Peter makes that confession, Jesus says to him, Peter, you are now a blessed man who will experience a God-wrought or God-given joy in his heart. So first of all, 
Peter is a model member of the church that God is building. The encouragement, he's a fallible man who has been chosen by Christ and blessed by God. Okay, so that what God needs for you to become part of what he is doing is not your perfection. He only needs your willingness. His power is what will sustain you. Not your abilities, not your efforts, but it is the grace of God that will sustain you. It is the grace of God that could look at Peter and say, you are Petros. You are a rock. And I'm going to use your life. Second thought as we move along is to look at the foundation of the church. What is it that makes the church strong? Okay, now, at one level, you can look at this text and say, well, it appears that on the surface, Jesus is saying that Peter is the rock upon which the church is going to be built. Okay, but I want you to notice in the text, okay, just real quickly, verse 18, you are Peter, Petros, and upon this, and and Petros meaning rock, upon this rock, Petra, which is in the feminine, I will build my church church because they have two separate words here one is petros rock referring to peter one is petra rock in the feminine and the question is what does it refer to okay and i think the simple answer to the text without going into a lot of complicated discussions is this i don't believe that the rock is peter because peter is a fallible man who needs correction, and it is unlikely that fallen humanity would be the foundation of something so secure. And yet, I think it is clear as you move ahead into the book of Ephesians chapter 2, that the apostles are part of the foundation. Okay, so there's a sense in which Peter is identified as a rock who is part of the building that God is constructing called his church. The question is, what is the core, solid foundation of the church? Okay, and I think it is this. I think it is found in the confession that Peter has made. The church of Christ is built upon a very simple fact. It is built upon truth about Jesus. That he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And that confession is what causes Jesus to look at Peter and say, you are a rock. And upon the confession that you're making about me, I will build my church. Now, I want you to think with me through Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19. Listen to this verse, Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. He says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Now notice what he says. You are being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Okay, so that's where I kind of, you start to get a key here. You are being built upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. So Peter is certainly part of the foundation of the early church. He is one of the early confessors or model believers. Okay, but notice what it says. Okay, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. Okay, you see the difference? Peter and the other apostles are part of the foundation. The cornerstone of the church is Jesus Christ. Okay, he is the foundation stone. He is the bedrock upon which the church is being built. This gives us deep and great assurance. 1 Peter 2, 
4 then makes a fascinating statement because your question has to become this, okay? Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He is the core to the foundation. The apostles are the early believers that are built into the foundation of the church. The question that's natural then is where do we fit in and in what sense is this text meant to give us confidence about the work of God? 1 Peter 2 verse 4 says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, now listen to this description of every believer, you also like living stones. So Peter is the rock, the prototypical confessor and believer. Then Peter identifies in his own words now later that every believer in Jesus is a living stone, is part of this building that God is erecting. And this should give us, I believe, great confidence. We are being built together, that is by God, into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Offering spiritual sacrifice is acceptable to God through Christ. For in the scripture it says, and this reaches back into the Old Testament, see I lay in Zion a chosen and precious cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Okay, now, here's what's fascinating. And I think just a lot of the songs we sung this morning emphasize this truth. We are what we are. We are the building that we are. We have the stability and strength that we have because of Jesus Christ. Peter is the model believer. What does he do? He trusts in Christ for his eternal security. He trusts in who Jesus is, the promised one of God from the Old Testament. The result is that he is transformed and becomes the man that he could be in Christ, that he could never be on his own. Because we can see what Peter can do. But when you go into the book of Acts and you find Peter filled with the Spirit of God, you know what you find out? You find out what God can do. A man who is lit with the power of God, who now boldly proclaims the, the, the glorious truth of Jesus Christ in the face of death and ultimately gives his life as a martyr for the cause and is laid as one of the foundation stones of the early church. The stability, and I think this is the thrust here, the foundation of the church is Jesus Christ, which means... The stability of the church and of my life as a believer is dependent upon Jesus Christ. We are built on him. He is the chief cornerstone. Now what that should do for our lives is the question I think that rises out of this text. If we are being built on him and he is the chief cornerstone and he has promised to build his church, it means that anyone who is part of the church must understand that Jesus is the sure foundation of our life. We, above everything else, should trust in Him and build upon Him in our lives for His glory. So Peter is the model believer. The foundation of the church is Christ. The other question that comes to mind is this. Who is it that is building the church? Verse 17. Jesus says, or verse 18, I'm sorry. He says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, this inevitable confession about the identity of Christ, upon this, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Who is the builder of the church? Okay? Now, my, my, my human response, my tendency is to think this, that we as Christians are builders of the church. In other words, Jesus lays the foundation and we are given the task of building the church. 
Okay? That is a mistaken notion that places too much trust in our own efforts, capacities, and abilities. The mistaken notion we have is that we as Christians are the builders of the church. But what we need to realize is that my weaknesses and inabilities will tend to kill my confidence. Okay? If you're, if you're honest and transparent with yourself, you realize that you have inherent weaknesses and inabilities. Jesus is not looking at Peter and saying, Peter, I want you to trust in you. You are the man. It's not what he's saying. Okay, he's saying, Peter, you're the rock, and upon this I am going to work. Okay, it's not so that Peter would be filled with self-confidence, and it may be very well that he was. And we know at the end of his life, certainly at the end of the Gospels, there's a time where where Peter has too much self-confidence, and it needs to be taken away from him so that he can begin to be built up by his Savior, Jesus Christ. What should we believe? I believe we should believe this, that Jesus is the builder of the church. And I think the first hint that the life change that Peter is going to experience that is going to convert him into a helper in building the church is found in verse 17. He says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man. I think the King James Version says, by flesh and blood. Where did Peter's faith come from? Who revealed to Peter that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God? Peter makes the confession. He's probably thinking, I hit that one out of the park. I got that right. And what does Jesus say to him? Peter, that conviction did not arise out of your intuition, out of your intelligence. Because we know that Peter has a tendency in that way, don't we? He says, Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. My Father in heaven made this clear to you. This, I believe, is a powerful truth that we as the church must get our arms around. Jesus is building the church. The reason you're in the church is not because in the past you made an intelligent decision about Jesus. You're in the church because God worked in your heart so as to convince you of your need for the glorious provision that he gave in Jesus. If you are in Christ, it should be for you the most humbling truth that you could ever possibly confess. That God changed my heart. Matthew 28, 18. After the resurrection, here's what Jesus says. All authority has been given to me. To do what? To build the church. And in light of that authority, he looks at the disciples and says, I empower you to go into all the world and make disciples of all people. Under whose direction? Under whose authority? The authority that Jesus Christ himself possesses. As he authorizes believers to go out and to make a difference in the lives of others in the world. Now, I want you to think about the book of Acts for one quick second. Peter is preaching the gospel in the book of Acts, chapter 2. Verse 47 says this. It says, as the apostles preached, the Lord added to the church those who were being saved. What does added to mean? Added to means to build up. If you're using the analogy of construction, the Lord is the one who is adding to the church. Acts chapter 16 and verse 14. Peter is preaching, or Paul is preaching the word of God in a city called Philippi. And here's what Acts 16, 14 says. It says, and the Lord opened Lydia's heart to believe the gospel. Acts chapter 16, the building up of the church in Philippi. A Philippian jailer has two men in his prison cell. Their names are Paul and Silas. And as they're singing, what happens? An earthquake comes 
And God opens the door. And God opens the heart of the Philippian jailer. So that his conversion is not owing simply to the efforts of Paul and Silas, but as Paul and Silas were filled with the power of God, they saw God work in building his church in Philippi. The foundation of the church in Philippi is laid under the power of the hand of God. He's building his church. Now, if you say, Pastor Tim, to what end does this encourage our hearts? I think it's this. Everything God has called us to do is a cooperative effort with him. Okay, he doesn't call us to go out there and make a difference in the world under our own effort, unaided. But he does call us to go out into the world and make a difference where we know we can. I can't change people's hearts. I was talking with a, a number of individuals recently who do not know Jesus, who are contemplating coming to faith in Christ, or contemplating the claims of Christ. And, and sometimes they'll say something to me, are you trying to change what I think or what I believe? And my answer is this, I can't change what you believe. I can't change what you think. I can't change your heart. You must be born from above. But we have the privilege as Christians of cooperating with and participating with God in the building of His church. But as you do your part, as you labor and strive to see the work of God grow in the context of your local church and in your community, would you just please make this confession on a daily basis? God, I am not adequate to do this on my own. And I want to rest in this very simple promise. You said, I will build my church and I want to be part of what you are doing. And as you do, and as you share the good news of Christ with others, you will begin to see the hand of God at work in your life. And when good things happen, and when people come to faith in Christ, or your own children come to faith in Christ, you will not be filled with a pride that inflates you. You will be humbled to your knees with a confession to say, God, the glory goes to you. You did this work in my child's heart. You did this work in my neighbor's heart. You brought that friend to Jesus Christ. And you're the one who changed my heart. Now see, this promise is exceedingly powerful and practical. Jesus looks at you and he says, I'm going to build my church. And then he says, now go into all the world and cooperate with me in this glorious work of building the body of Christ. I think the simple truth that emerges from this, is, is, from this idea that the builder of the church is Christ is this. God, through his son Jesus, is at work around you. He's building his church. The question that we as believers need to answer is this. Am I willing to join him in what he is doing? You see, folks, I think this promise in Matthew 16, verse 18, holds true today. I believe that Jesus Christ is building his church today. I believe he is working and desires to work mightily and powerfully in our community. Not through our abilities and capacities alone. But he wants to aid us in seeing a dramatic difference made in our community for his glory. He is working. The question that we as Christians have to face is this. Will I join him? Will I surrender my personal allegiances and pledge allegiance to his cause? Will I make his purposes and his plan what the, the thing that drives my life? We are critical in the process. And I think just as, as you look at this text, Jesus says, I'm going to build the church. There may be a part of you that says, well, if Jesus is building this church, then I'm just going to step aside and go do my own thing and enjoy my life. Okay, here's what I would say to you this morning. You can't do that without disobeying the call of Christ to go into all the world and preach the gospel. You can't. Okay, this is the thing that is amazing to me. We are critical in the process of building the church. 
but we must remember that we are not unaided in the process. And now, what should that do? That should give you a degree of confidence that says, tomorrow, this week, I'm going to go out and seek to do what I can't do. Because God has promised to go with me and to make me capable of things that I cannot do in my own strength. Okay, and that should, just a confidence, it should produce in us a new sense of courage, a new sense of boldness that is born by the Spirit of God. That I can't change people's hearts. I don't know if you've, you've had those discussions with people, you seriously feel like you are pulling teeth spiritually, trying to get them to change their mind. And then you see God work in someone's heart, and you realize, I didn't do that. That was God. And, and I'm going to tell you something. There are, are very few things in your life will bring, that will bring you that kind of joy that you will find when you are walking with God and cooperating with Him in this work of building His church. You're a living stone actively participating in what God is doing in His church. He will build His church. Will you join Him? And when you do, He will fill your heart with a a boldness, and a courage. The last thought I want to leave you this, this morning is this. What is the hope of the church? What is the security of the church in the face of opposition? Verse 18, Jesus says this, I will build my church and the gates of hell or Hades, that is the grave, will not overcome it. Okay, now what does that mean? I suggest to you this. There is in this certainly a promise of security, but it is a security that is present in the face of opposition. The opposition of the church in this text is identified as the gates of hell or Hades. Now you can move in two different directions from this. One is to see the gates as the symbol of power of the opposing empire, the work of Satan. It's Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. Okay, uh, Powers that are organized, that have hierarchy and structure. The spiritual warfare that we talked about in the month of, of September. All right, so you can see those things. And that's part of, I believe, what is present here. Satan's brutal attempts to silence the advance of the gospel and to pre- prevent its spread. But there's also, I think, bound up in this, the statement that the gates of hell, that is the place of death, will not overcome it. Because, in Ephesians 4 and verse 8, the Bible tells us this. When Jesus ascended after his, de- after his death. When he ascended, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. That is, he led out of the place, out of the abode of the dead, people redeemed. Okay, death itself cannot overcome the work of God. It's why the Apostle Paul could say in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What is the greatest threat that somebody can place against you. You know what the greatest threat is? The greatest threat is, I'm going to kill you. That's the, that's the worst thing. If you, if you just want to know what's the worst thing that someone could possibly ever do to me, that's it. Okay? They can threaten to take your life. Here's what Jesus says. If someone takes your life, the gates of hell itself, the abode of the dead, will not overcome the purposes and plan of God for your life. Death is not the end because God has promised us through Jesus a victory. Now, 
the gates of hell will not prevail against it means what? It means that we as Christians should live lives that are secure because his work in and through us is in fact indestructible. Okay, he has called us into a forever community that is called the family of God. And he has promised that at the end of of our physical life that we will die and be buried. But he has also promised that in the future he will raise us from the dead by the power of him that raised Christ from the dead. So our greatest fear in this text is confronted through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus does not promise us freedom from opposition, but he promises us victory in the face of it. John chapter 16, verse 31. Jesus says, you believe at last. But a time is coming when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone. My Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have, do you know the next word here? In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Okay, that is the hope of believers. That as we go out into the world to make a difference for the glory of God, the the greatest fear that we could possibly have is death itself. All right, that's the greatest possible fear we could have. Jesus says, don't let the trouble bother you because I have overcome it. And here's what's fascinating to me. That is prior to the crucifixion of Christ and prior to the resurrection of Christ. He's already speaking of his infinite power to overcome whatever comes against you. And then he validates that he is capable to do that by overcoming your greatest enemy, death itself. Now folks, I think the argument here is from the lesser or from the greater to the lesser. If Jesus says the gates of hell, the assault of Satan that may end in death, that is going to the abode of the dead, he says the gates of hell, including death itself, will not prevail or overtake you. Okay, what is, why is he reaching to the worst extremity? I believe the answer is this. If Jesus Christ can overcome death in your life by bringing you into his presence forever and ever, if he can overcome that, then there is no other circumstance in your life between where you are and the experience of death that can separate you from his love. Does that make sense? I mean, if he can take care of raising you from the dead, then you are not facing a problem today that he can't handle. Do you see? When Jesus snatched out of the hand of the enemy the tool or weapon of death, he took away from him his greatest threat. And he gave to the church a courage. This is what you find with the disciples. After the crucifixion, what are they? They are downcast, downtrodden. Why? Because the leader that promised resurrection and hope and life and victory over death itself is dead. But when Jesus rises from the dead, what happens to them? The complaining, bickering, divided, weak, fearful disciples become a changed group of men. And they reach back to the promise, I will build my church, and they cling to the new commandment, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, identify them with the kingdom. Let them be confessors. Because in the waters of baptism, this is what's happening. Every believer is becoming a Peter. It's confessing. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And I place the hope of my eternal life in Him alone and in His shed blood. That's the confession. 
Every Christian, folks, please understand this. Every Christian has the potential to be a model confessor and testifier. And what Jesus says is this. The person who has the the knowledge of this work of Christ that is revealed by the Father, not by intellect, but by the work of the Father, and makes this confession will be filled with greatest joy. It's why Jesus can say, Peter, blessed are you. You see something that human eyes can't see. You see something that God has allowed you to see. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And folks, here's what I believe God wants. God wants every one of us to be living stones in the church of God, reaching out to our community and making a difference. I said to you a few weeks ago, this very simple, if you want to call it an idiom or saying, okay, what is God interested in building? What does he want to build? You know what he wants to build? You know what he's devoted to? He is devoted to building his church, which is a community of people drawn out from the world in general into this beautiful family of God. And that family of God is more important to him than any building. In fact, here's what you'll find. As you read through the New Testament, you will never find the word church, ecclesia, being applied to a physical building, ever. Okay, you never drive down the road and you you and I, we all make this mistake. Oh, that's such and such a church. No, it's not a church. What you're looking at is simply a building. Okay, what are we to be most interested in? We're to be most interested in joining with Jesus and what he's doing. He's at work around us. He wants us to join with him in reaching our community for his glory. People are more important than buildings. Now, as we as a church look forward... What are we striving to do? We're striving to build a building that we believe will be a tool that God can use to help us more effectively reach our world for Christ. Okay, and it's just, my heart is, is, is kind of heavy with this thought as we move forward and see God's purposes in terms of a physical building that we would never lose sight of what Jesus is doing. Does that make sense? What Jesus is doing is attracting people to himself through his redeeming blood. And when Peter finally got it, he said, Peter, you you will not be called Peter. You are now Peter. You're getting it, Peter. You're being incorporated into this bigger work that God is doing. So the chapel at Warren Valley is a few of the stones in what God is doing and drawing together a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Folks, that is the glory of the church. Death itself can't overtake God's purposes. Death itself will, in fact, usher us into the fulfillment of of God's purposes. Because he has overcome the grave. When the disciples saw Jesus for who he really was, they made the confession. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And when they made that confession, Jesus said to them, I'm going to build my church and I want you to be part of what I'm doing. And what I promise you this morning is the greatest joy in your life, this blessed are you, Peter, is something that Jesus Christ wants to say to every individual in this church. Blessed are you, chapel family. If you know Christ, it is not a result of intellect and the decision that you made. It is a result of God's grace showing you there is a sinner in need of a Savior and He is the one. You see, that's really what the word Messiah means. The anointed one the one that was longed for, who would not only come one day to rule, but would first come to die and pay the price for our sin. You know how Jesus laid the first building block of the church? He shed his blood and paid the price of your sin so that he could bring you out, set you free, and make you part of what he is doing for his glory. May God help us 
to join him today in what he is doing. Let's bow our heads together in prayer this morning.